Luke 5, verses 27 through to 32. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through to 30. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honour your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, No one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Trying to get all the right buttons pushed up here so I can keep a track of how long I'm going to go for. Anyway... I think it's fair to say uh, that Jesus of Nazareth is reasonably well respected within this community. Yes? Yeah, and I think if you went out into our community and asked people about Jesus, they'd tell you, I think, that they had a reasonable opinion of Jesus as a good teacher. Have you ever come across that, where someone tells you, yes, I like the things that Jesus tells you? that familiar to you? A few nods? I wonder when people tell me that, whether they've actually ever read what Jesus said. I don't know about you, but as I've dug into Jesus's words, there are not too many parts of uh, what we have from Jesus that leave me feeling comfortable, that leave me feeling, oh, isn't this wonderful? Jesus has a masterful way of crossing over the core values of our society, those deeply held beliefs, and challenging us to see things in a different way. So over the next little while, we're going to be spending some time uh, doing a series in Luke's Gospel called Hard Words. 
looking at the claims that Jesus makes on us, digging more deeply in there so we actually get the real Jesus and not some plastic Jesus of our own invention. Because if Jesus is anything to us, it needs to be the real Jesus rather than some figment of our imagination. And so we're going to be working through these hard words. Because Jesus had a knack of saying things to stir people up. Now, if you are visiting with us this morning, it is great that you are here, particularly if you're someone uh, who has not necessarily got the whole Jesus thing sorted. You know his name, obviously you know enough to turn up to church this morning, uh, but you're still trying to work out what it means to follow Jesus. Can I say it is so good that you are here, and I hope that this is not your only visit with us. And this series is particularly, I think, special and important for you at this point. Because Jesus, we need to know Jesus if we're going to follow Jesus. But if you have been a Christian, maybe like me, for decades... Can I say it's really good that you're here too, so don't just get up and leave. Uh, Because sometimes, I don't know about you, you get comfortable with Jesus. You get used to reading these words and sitting back and going, yep, okay, I understand that. I guarantee everyone here has probably heard Jesus' words read when he says, follow me. But this week has been profoundly provocative as I've dug into this and hopefully this morning for you. So let's pray and we'll get into follow me. Father, we thank you. We thank you that in your word we know you truly. We thank you that the Lord Jesus' words and actions are preserved here for us, that we might know what it is that you have done for us and what it is that you call us to. And I pray that you give us attentive hearts and minds. Father, give me the right words to speak Uh, that I might present your truth clearly. And we ask, Father, that your spirit would be at work, uh, opening our eyes, softening our hearts, and changing our lives, that we might follow Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. There's a poem written by a guy called W.E. Henley. Uh, You probably know it because it was misused in a fairly significant recent movie called Invictus. Come on, you should have known that. You should have known that. Can I just say Nelson Mandela did not give uh, the captain of the Springboks the poem Invictus. He gave him something else, but the, the movie liked that. But in Invictus, it captures the essence of our culture's obsession with autonomy, with freedom. W.E. Henley, I am the master of my fate. You're familiar with these words? I am the captain of my soul. That was 1888. Not much has changed because in 1990, the great philosopher band, the Soup Dragons, I'm sure you're familiar with them, uh, they said this, don't be afraid of your freedom. Freedom, I'm free to do what I want. Some of us have got the soundtrack playing in our minds, yes? That's because you're old like me. Okay, I think I was about four when this song came out. No, it was 1990. I'm free to be what I want any old time. I could have picked one of a million examples. We live in a society that holds up individual freedom as an ultimate good. Yes? 
No one should tell us what we should do. Australia typifies this. We love our politicians because we love ignoring them largely. We have this attitude to authority that just tells us that we will tolerate them when it suits us. No one tells me what to do. We have a society that looks at leadership with a little bit of suspicion because if you want to be a leader, you want to tell other people how to live. So most of us, when we're looking for leaders, we're sitting on our hands. Maybe we don't want to be leaders, but we definitely also don't want to be a follower. So when I was doing my research, I went to that great pinnacle of knowledge called the Urban Dictionary. Does anyone know the Urban Dictionary? Okay, just go online, you'll find it there. And people offer their own definitions of words. And I typed in follower into the Urban Dictionary and I found this. Follower, one who doesn't think for themselves. Rather than decide what's right for them, they will adopt the beliefs and opinions of others. Does everything the leader of the group says. And brutal empty shell of a person with no soul. Who here wants to be a follower? Wow. But over and against this, we heard and read to us just two of the many times that Jesus says, follow me. We see in Christ... God's call and our society go head to head. On one hand, our society tells you you can be free, you can be a whole person, you can be autonomous, self-determined, or you can be a mindless drone, a slave, a follower. Which one would you choose? Jesus' words cut straight across the values of our society. But I would like to suggest that our society doesn't really quite get freedom, autonomy. Because I'd like to suggest, and I think the wiser people in our society recognise this, that autonomy is a myth. So I've got a little bit of a video, Gus is going to make sure we've got sound, that I think captures a little bit of this. This is when I was going through my chick flick flays. It's the devil wears Prada. You'll enjoy that. Where are the belts for this dress? Why is no one ready? Here. It's a tough call. They're so different. Mm. (laughs) Something funny? No, 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 nothing's, you know, it's just that both those belts look exactly the same to me. You know, I'm still learning about this stuff and, uh... This stuff? Oh, okay, I see. You think this has nothing to do with you. You go to your closet and you select, I don't know, that lumpy blue sweater, for instance, because you're trying to tell the world that you take yourself too seriously to care about what you put on your back, but what you don't know is that that sweater is not just blue, it's not turquoise, it's not lapis, it's actually cerulean. And you're also blithely unaware of the fact that in 2002, Oscar de la Renta did a collection of cerulean gowns, and then I think it was Yves Saint Laurent, wasn't it, who 
showed Cerulean military jackets. I think we need a jacket here. Mm. And then Cerulean quickly showed up in the collections of eight different designers. And then it uh, filtered down through the department stores and then trickled on down into some tragic casual corner where you no doubt fished it out of some clearance bin. However, that blue represents millions of dollars and countless jobs. And it's sort of comical how you think that you've made a choice that exempts you from the fashion industry when, in fact, you're wearing a sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room from a pile of stuff. She's not very nice, is she? You're wearing a sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room. When you got dressed this morning, why did you make the choices that you actually made? Is it... It was on the... Kathy put it there for you. Yeah, yeah. Follower! <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but it's true, isn't it? Our whole sense of fashion, how we present ourselves, even if for those of us who think we're immune to such things... Actually, some of you are immune to such things. But anyway, um, no. But it's because of... Of where we are. If we were in Fiji now, all us guys would probably be wearing dresses because that's what Fijian culture tells. But we're not wearing dresses because we're not in Fiji. Our culture, on even a basic level, has shaped us. What we think is good is so often determined by the, the, the society that we live in. I'm going to tell you a word. I want you to tell me if it's a good word or a bad word according to our society. The word is diversity. How could you think that diversity is bad in our current climate? Whenever you hear it in the media, whenever we, it has that warm glow to it, doesn't it? We all feel fuzzy about it. And so who wouldn't want diversity? Who wouldn't want equality? And to argue against in our current culture sets you apart. Just even the words that we use shape us. We are not captains of our souls. We are not masters of our fate. So much of our life is determined for you. Kids, look at your parents. Parents, look at your kids. It's just the way it is, isn't it? They run you ragged. Either way, work it out. <laughs> Can I say that our cultural obsession with this idea of freedom is actually a cultural obsession. It's not something that we've all come up with individually. We live in a culture that tells us that we have to be free. So the Jewish philosopher, Zygmunt Bauman, I love that name, uh, he writes in a book, I've given it to you in the notes, com in complete form, because it's a long quote, but I think an important quote. He writes, in a society of individuals, that's us, everyone must be an individual. In this respect, at least, members of a such a society are anything but individual, different or unique. They are, on the contrary, surprisingly like each other in that they must follow the same life strategy and use the shared, commonly recognisable and legible tokens to convince others that they are doing it. If we live in a society that says you have to be an individual, I need to show to you that I'm being an individual in a way that you understand which is the way that you're being an individual. So we're all individuals together in exactly the same way. Do you see his point? 
He says in the question of individuality, there is no individual choice. To be an individual means to be like everyone else in the crowd. You might think that your tat makes you such a radical individual. But I can say there's probably lots of other people here with them as well. Do you know how mainstream those things have been? You know, we're all individual in a way that each of us understand how individual we are, which means we're all the same. Bauman points out that we are controlled by our culture. And maybe Zalman's a bit, Bauman's a bit um, highbrow for you. Let's go Monty Python. You're all individuals, and they say, yes, we're all individuals. You're all different. Yes, we're all different. And then one guy says, come on, I'm not. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. But you get the idea. The only way to be an individual is actually to be the same. But how does that work? Can I say, I think individuality, autonomy, self-determination is a myth. Everyone follows someone. Everyone follows something. The question we have before us is who do you follow? Who do you follow? What do you follow? That is what actually makes a difference. So Anne read for us a couple of probably familiar passages for most of us, stories where Jesus encounters people and calls them to follow him. To give you the context on the first one, Jesus is at the start of his ministry and just before he meets Levi the tax collector, this story we're going to spend most of our time with this morning, he has, uh, he's been teaching and you've got that story, that great story about the four friends who dig a hole in the roof and lower their paralysed mate down in amongst Jesus and Jesus says to this paralysed man, who obviously is paralysed because he's been lowered down through the roof, he says, your sins are forgiven. And then to demonstrate that he has that authority, he heals him. And the guy gets up and walks, leaves demonstrating that Jesus not only can heal, but has the authority to forgive sins. And then we have the story that Anne read for us, where Jesus then goes out and meets Levi, the tax collector, on the side of the road and calls him to follow Now, what Jesus wasn't saying when he said, follow me, he wasn't just saying, hey, get up and walk after me, okay? It's not playing follow the leader here. When we understand the idea of following Jesus, as it was for many of the people of his era, it's a call to discipleship. So when Jesus is saying, follow me, he's saying, you, come and be with me, You come and learn from me. You come and serve me. So much more than I'm going somewhere, do you want to come too? Jesus is inviting Levi into a life of discipleship. And as he does that, we will see four key things about this, about this call to discipleship. And the first thing I want to draw your attention to is that Luke, by telling us this particular story, you know, there are 12 disciples. Luke tells us about the calling of five of them. Four of them just before this, Peter, Andrew, James, John, you know, the fishermen beside the sea, and then Levi, the tax collector. He's done it deliberately. He could have picked up Thaddeus or Bartholomew or some of the others. 
But he tells us about Levi, I think, to make the point that this call to discipleship is open to everyone. Because as far as disciples go, Levi, I think, would have been seen as being the bottom of the barrel. This guy was a tax collector. And as a tax collector, he was viewed as a traitor. He was viewed as worse than the dogs. He was outcast. One commentator said he was socially outcast and immorally wealthy. When you saw this guy go down the street in his nice clothes with his attendants, you know that it was the money that he ripped off from you and from your friends, your family, your neighbours that has paid for his well-to-do lifestyle. This guy was scum. They often associated, they were like underworld enforcers. They'd have their heavy guys that if you couldn't pay, these guys would do you over. When the Jews revolted from Rome, their tax collectors became targets for political assassination. People hated these people with a passion. Not just politically, but they were socially, morally outcast. And by telling us this story, Jesus and Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is actually saying it's not about what you have to offer Jesus. The Pharisees, when they turn up their nose at Levi and all his mates, they were dead right to do it. The guy was scum. The guy was scum. But by Jesus calling him, Jesus demonstrates that there is no one for whom grace is not sufficient. He's just told us that Jesus has the power to forgive sins. And now he's saying, because of that power, anyone can be welcomed into relationship with Jesus, closest relationship, not a second class, but Levi the tax collector is embraced as a disciple of the Lord Jesus. A guy called Jefferson Bethke speaks of this grace. He says, grace economy is backwards to most of us. Those who think they qualify don't, and those who admit they don't qualify do. Levi is showing us that God's grace is open to all. If you think you deserve to be Jesus' followers, you don't. If, like Levi, you recognise your need, you do. That's that grace economy. What else does he teach us? It shows us that in calling people to discipleship, it is Jesus' initiative. Lots of people, when we think about conversion, we think about it from our side. And we have our own experience, and maybe you can relate. For me, I can remember hearing the gospel over a couple of years, but then particularly over a one-week camp where I was away, and at the end of that camp, I said, I know this is true, I've got to do something about it. And so from my perspective, I see that I chose Jesus. But from Jesus' perspective here, we see not just in the Gospels but throughout the letters, it is God's call that precedes our response. He's the one who asks us to dance. 
All we do is respond by his grace, empowered by his spirit, to that invitation. At the time, students used to choose their teachers. It's kind of like uh, we choose schools as parents. You choose schools for your children. Maybe some of you are choosing universities and you've, you've waded through all the different things and you've gone to the open days and you go, I like that one, but I'm not going to go to that one because it doesn't really meet my needs. What Jesus is doing here is like the principal of a school knocking on the door and saying, your children will study with my school. You go, wow, you know, by what right? Jesus has every right and Jesus is the one who calls us into relationship with him. So as we understand that call, it's not so much that we decide to follow Jesus. Yes, we do make a choice, but it is his choice that precedes that. And it is his spirit that provokes our response, that enables our response. To use the language of Ephesians chapter 2, we were dead in our sins and transgressions different image but God has made us alive in Christ dead people don't come back to life without God doing that work Jesus calls us and when he calls us he calls us our third point for all or nothing he tolerates no rivals so as Anne read for us about the story about the rich guy he did everything right he kept all the commandments all these kind of things but then Jesus Maybe Jesus knew a bit about him. Maybe it was one of those divine moments where he had that insight into people that he so often has. He sees that this man serves money. And so if he is going to follow Jesus, that money needs to go. The man cannot do it. And so he does not follow. Jesus wants all of us. He doesn't just want us when it's convenient. He doesn't want us when we fit in. Karen and I were at a church, a couple of churches ago, and we had a young lady explain to us that when she was with her Christian friends, she was kind of like this. But when she was with her non-Christian friends, it was like she was a different person. And the wonderful naivety of it, she didn't realise just how bad that sounded. Because Jesus doesn't say, I want the bits, I want the Christian bits of you. He wants all of us. He wants all of us. He doesn't just want Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights, Friday nights, whatever day ES is on at uni or other groups you're involved in. He doesn't just want it when it's convenient. He doesn't want it when it's comfortable. He wants you to come and follow him each and every day. Jesus is all or nothing. And as he calls, I don't know if you've noticed, it just really struck home to me this week. Jesus doesn't say, hey, I'm going to heaven. Would you like to come? Do you notice that when he says, come and follow me, he doesn't actually identify either a path or a destination. What he's doing, he's inviting us into a relationship, not a destination. Jesus will lead us 
somewhere that is amazing. But the focus is not on the destination. It's on the one with whom we are in relationship. Do you ever think of heaven and wonder if Jesus wasn't there, would it still be heaven? I used to think of heaven, you know, as you do. It was like an eternal skiing run where kind of the mountain just kind of rolled out underneath just eternally. I assumed my thighs could actually hack it. Um, but, but that vision of heaven was, was obviously a very Cameron-centric heaven. That may not be your heaven. I'm happy for that. Uh, but where was Jesus? Where was Jesus in that heaven? Again, Jefferson Bethke actually says, heaven isn't a place for people who are scared of hell. It's for people who love Jesus. The reason heaven is heavenly, full of joy, life and bliss, is because we'll be with Jesus. Heaven is not primarily a place. Heaven is a relationship. Heaven is that relationship that we have been made for. And so I want to ask you this morning, The danger for those of us who've been Christians for a while, maybe just a little while, is are we Christian hitchhikers? So we're destination-focused, not relationship-focused. I want to get to heaven. And so what it means is I'll hitch a ride with Jesus because he looks like he's going to get there. But I'm not really that hung up on Jesus but I want where he's going. But if we actually see that heaven actually is relationship with God, restored that perfection, that blessing, that peace, we realise that we can't be hitchhikers. So how would you know? I want to ask you, first question, Do you want Jesus every day? Do you want Jesus morning, noon and night? Is Jesus an ongoing concern or is he like the guy that's giving you a lift that when he pulls into the service station, you offer to pay a bit to keep on going? Maybe when you go past the Maccas, you offer to buy him lunch. You work out how how much is enough to keep Jesus happy so I get to go where he's going and he doesn't kick me out of the car. Do you want Jesus each and every day? Do you want to learn from him? Do you want to serve him? Do you want to be with him? Another question that helps us think about this is how do you react when Jesus is taking you somewhere you don't want to go. Psalm 23, Psalm many of us will know, maybe by heart. You know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Do you know, even though I walk, the older translation I think is through the valley of the shadow of death. Brothers and sisters, I don't need to tell you that Jesus can lead us into very difficult places. Are there places where you wouldn't want to follow him? 
where you wouldn't follow him? Do we trust the person or do we just long for the destination? I think that's the question that you need to sort out to work out whether you're a follower or merely a hitchhiker. Why would you do it? Why would you give Jesus everything? In our society, it makes no sense to be free, to be self-determined, to be autonomous, to do it your way. Why would you give that up to become, in the eyes of our society, a mindless drone? Someone who can't make up their own mind needs the leader to tell them. Why would you do this? Brothers and sisters, hopefully I've done something to convince you that you all follow someone. The Lord Jesus alone laid down his life for you. Why did he do that? Out of his love for you. He did everything that was necessary so that you might be able to follow. That forgiveness of sins that is foreshadowed with the paralyzed guy coming down through the roof is accomplished in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. If you think that following Jesus is going to dehumanize you, make you less, Jesus could not love you more. Everyone else, everything else, will crush you to the ground, will fail you at the need. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your rod and staff, they comfort me. Why? Because he is with us. Because he has been there before us. And because we can trust him. Just quickly as we wrap up. What does responding to the call look like? What does Levi do? He hears Jesus' call, he gets up, and he follows. That is faith. He hears that Jesus is calling him and he responds. It's not just a, oh, Jesus is calling you, that's nice. He gets up, he leaves everything, and follows. And as he leaves everything, he leaves behind everything that his life was built upon. Jesus is not going to physically walk past the Allgate Memorial Hall, stick his head in and say, you guys, follow me. Pretty sure about that this morning. How do we do this? Can I suggest that the physical leaving that Levi made was the easiest? We might think, wow, that's a big thing. Leaving your job. James and, jo- uh, James and John, Peter and Andrew, leaving their families, leaving their businesses. That's the little stuff. It's leaving what those things mean. And that's how we can do it. Because Jesus is saying, I will have no rivals. And that's what repentance is. It's turning away from anything else that is in the place of God in our life. And saying, I will follow Christ. Responding to that call is faith, it's repentance. And then what does Levi do? He throws a party. Because he recognises what Jesus says 
in John chapter 9, John chapter 8, is, is true. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The Jewish leaders thought they were free. Jesus tells them they are slaves. Jesus, through the cross, through his death and resurrection, has set them free, set us free, if we will only respond to that call. Brothers and sisters, this morning, hopefully, I have done something to show that not only is answering Jesus' call a wise thing, it is the best thing. It is the thing that we were made for. It's the thing that our hearts should sing about. Lord, you're calling me to come to behold the wondrous cross, the thing that made my discipleship possible. And maybe this morning, if you are someone who is yet to put your faith in Christ, yet to respond to Christ with that, yes, I will follow, I turn away from everything else. If that is you, maybe this morning, hear that call again. Jesus says, follow me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have set us free. That you have called us by your grace and mercy through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Through the proclamation of the good news. You have called us to trust. You have called us to turn away from the things that get between us and you. You have called us to follow Christ. Father, let us press on. We know that we are prone to wonder. But Lord, we also know that your grace is sufficient for each and every day. Father, I pray for those this morning who are still deciding about whether they will follow. I ask, Lord, that your spirit would stir them, that they would come to see that Jesus is worth entrusting everything to, that only as we give up everything for him that we become truly human, only in our losing our lives, do we gain them. Father, we thank you for the blessing that you have poured on us and let us live lives of joyful celebration. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.